Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this outside a gas station in Los Gatos, California, the birthplace of former Atlanta Braves shortstop Jeff Blauser. You know, the narrative of Cleveland, the city of Cleveland, the sports narrative of Cleveland has changed so drastically since LeBron James delivered the championship this summer that you kind of look back at some of the times that they didn't win over the years and you realize that that helped create that narrative. It's really going to be one of the great, I think one of the great narratives in the history of sports is what happened there. Don't worry, this is going to turn a baseball very, very soon. That you had this star player who everyone knew he was going to be a star when he was in high school. Lands in Cleveland, and you're thinking, okay, did Cleveland just land the biggest star since Jordan? And you could argue that he is. and you know, Probably can make a very compelling argument for that. Uh, certainly an all-time, one of the top ten all-time great players. Blah, 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 blah. But you have the tortured history of Cleveland. The dude is from, Cle- from um, Ohio. And so there's a connection emotionally to this person from Ohio, in Ohio, Kenny Deliverit. And the narrative of he played on the team, got him all the way to the finals, couldn't get him over the top, signed an extension, still couldn't get him over the top. It looked like he quit on the team, looked like he quit on the city goes off to Miami for four years, learns how to become a champion, learns how to become a leader, comes back to Cleveland, leads him to the NBA Finals, but they fall short as there's too many injuries, and then down three to one to the greatest regular season team of all time, and then puts the team on his back, makes that great block shot. They win it in the last minute, blah, blah, blah. And what that did, like I talked about the podcast a few days ago about what I want to see happen with Washington, is it turned all the negative negative story points into positives. Him going to Miami became a positive because it's part of a larger narrative. And all the failures in Cleveland added to that narrative. You know, we saw it with the Red Sox, with all the failures before 2004 added to the narrative. I think of the Aaron Boone home run as a chapter of which 2004 completed. But the, that great LeBron narrative would have been non-existent. It would have been basketball only had the Cleveland Indians won the World Series in the 1990s. In fact, the storyline around the Indians winning would have been the great unifying Cleveland's back moment that the Cavaliers championship over at Golden State was. There was this anticipation when they moved into the new ballpark, kind of on the heels of the movie Major League, which kind of poked fun at the notion of the Indians never winning. And in fact, the Indians never did win the World Series in the Major League movies. I was like that. Is that even in a film where there was a voodoo outfielder, 
they didn't stretch reality too far and have the Indians win the World Series. When they put together this team that had Sandy Alomar, Jim Tomey, for a while they had Carlos Baerga, uh, Manny Ramirez, they had Eddie Murray for a while, they had uh, uh, Omar Vizquel, they had all these wonderful, Kenny Lofton, all these wonderful players. And in the strike-shortened season, it was clear they had put together a contender. In the 95 season, they won 100 games in a shortened season. And then they got to within, you know, they got all the way to the World Series. And it looked like they were going to be a team that was going to go to multiple World Series, and eventually they were going to win one of them. And damn it, you couldn't get closer than they did. One of the th scenes you see in all the montages of Cleveland is losing Game 7 of the 1997 World Series in the bottom of the ninth inning. They left, they left the tying run, and they wound up losing it in 11 innings with Renteria's base hit off of Nagy's glove. But it was Jose Mesa's meltdown in the ninth inning that tied the game. And, I mean, that was, that was on the verge of being an Indians championship, and what a moment that would have been. And that run, the Mike Hargrove-led Indians, would have been uh, considered one of the great teams of recent years and would have been, with a championship, would have been that wonderful counterpart to the Joe Torre Yankees. You had the, in fact, for a little bit, it looked like they were going to have the flip-flopping, flip-flopping, similar to what you've seen with the, the Cardinals and Giants in this decade, where you had the Indians won the pennant in 95, Yankees won it in 96. Indians won it in 97. Yankees won it in 98. And for a period where they were up 2 nothing, on, the Indians were up 2 nothing on the Red Sox in the division series in 99, I felt like, oh, maybe the Indians are going to do it this year. And lest we forget, the Indians in 1998 were up two games to one on the Yankees at home and were facing El Duque Hernandez who was an unproven playoff commodity at that point. If the Indians won that game, they probably would have won the pennant. And the talk of the 98 Yankees, well, that would be similar to the Cavaliers uh, beating the 2016 Golden State Warriors. The Indians needed to win one of those years, win it all one of those years, to be put in the conversation of the great all-time teams, at least in recent years. And instead, they're a frustrating footnote. They're a team that just couldn't put it all together. Now, when you take a look at those Indians teams, one of the things that they sorely missed was that knockdown, drag out, hand the ball to them, and don't worry about it, ace. Now, you could argue that the Yankees had not the one ace, but had depth up and down their rotation, and that would be true, although they got ace-like seasons out of Andy Pettit one year, David Wells another, and Roger Clemens another year. This was a period of time where if the Indians had that big ace, I truly believe they would have won it all. In one of those years, they would have won it all because the lack of that hand the ball to me and don't worry about it, ace, 
I think derailed them in 98. I think it derailed them in 99. And I think it was the difference in not advancing 2001. Who knows? It may have even have been not having the big ace to counter with the Braves pitching in 95. That may have cost them in 95 as well. I don't know the answer. But one thing that is strange, when you look at that era and the depth of that Indian's uh, uh, farm system and everything, when you think about Randy Johnson pitched in the 97 postseason with Seattle, the 98 postseason with Houston, and the 99 postseason with Arizona. He moved around a lot, but did he go to Cleveland? No. No, he didn't. Roger Clemens went from Boston in that period of time that we're talking about, the late part of the 1990s. Clemens went from Boston to Toronto to the Yankees. David Wells found himself in that stretch of time pitching in the postseason with the Reds, Orioles, and Yankees. Kevin Brown, lest we forget, don't ever forget what a great pitcher Kevin Brown was. In his heyday, he was an elite pitcher. And he saw himself pitching in 97 with the Marlins, 98 with the Padres, and by 1999 he was a member of the L.A. Dodgers. Elite pitchers were changing teams. Elite pitchers found themselves going from one team to another, jumping from one squad to another in that era. And none of them landed in Cleveland. If one of those pitchers I just said landed in Cleveland, then the Indians probably have themselves a world championship banner. And the narrative of what team won it in Cleveland, what team gave Cleveland the championship they've been waiting their whole lives for, would have been a much different story. And who knows, maybe the whole narrative of LeBron going away would have been different because it was the he abandoned Cleveland and they still have never won. And now he won and he finally delivered it to them. So those two, the exaggeration in that narrative would have been different if there was a championship. I was reading something, I believe it was in the Sporting News. They were talking about the trades, that biggest trades in baseball history that almost happened. I'm going to read you from part of this. That the Indians had Jarrett Wright, and Jarrett Wright uh, wound up pitching well for the Indians in the 1997 postseason. And after they lost the World Series in that frustrating way against the Marlins, the Indians had a chance to pull off a trade. Now, it would have cost them two good young pitchers, Jared Wright and Bartolo Colon. Uh, Wright wound up having a nice career. It was nice. He had a nice career. But he never it was the superstar it looked like he was going to become during the you know, 97 postseason. Bartolo Colon, who's still pitching, obviously has had a wonderful career. He won a Cy Young Award that I don't really think he should have won, but what are you going to do? They were going to pull off the trade with the Montreal Expos for the reigning National League Cy Young Award winner, Pedro Martinez. Lest we forget, 
Pedro was the man in Montreal before he became the man in Boston. It also became very clear there would be no way in heaven or on earth that the Expos would be able to resign Pedro Martinez for any amount because his value was just through the roof. And so the Indians looked like a potential landing spot for Pedro Martinez. It would have cost him. It would have cost him Bartolo Colon. It would have cost him Jarrett Wright. But close your eyes for a minute and imagine. At that point in 1997, the Yankees were not the dynasty yet. They weren't. They won one World Series, and they had two agonizing division series losses, though losing to the um, Seattle Mariners on the Edgar Martinez double, and also losing to the Cleveland Indians in 1997 in the division series. So going to 1998, the Yankees were not exactly considered to be the win-every-year juggernaut. They had won exactly one World Series since 1978. In two decades, they had a grand total of one championship. They were tied with the Marlins in that total. So, if the Indians had brought in Pedro Martinez, and Pedro Martinez would have pitched the way he did in Boston, and you take a look at the rest of that team, a team that was, you know, of which a player like Pedro, who's, you know, I love Pedro. He's my favorite player in the history of baseball. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's a little flamboyant. I'm also going to go out on a limb and say he's proud of his Latin roots as he brought out the Dominican flag and was waving it during his speech at the Hall of Fame last year. You put him on a team that was already a pennant winner and already had... Many of its biggest stars were Latin stars, like Sandy Alomar Jr., like Manny Ramirez, like Omar Vizquel. And you put him front and center on this team going into 1998. I'm guessing the Indians win that World Series in 1998. And they become the dynasty team of the late 90s in a way that the Yankees weren't. Or maybe they face off, as I said, flipping back and forth and back and forth. You think of that team in 98. They wound up going 89 and 73. And they had to rely on the lights of Dave Berba and Dwight Gooden and Chad OJ in the rotation. I mean, they got okay years from Bartolo Colon and Jarrett Wright, but they were relying on a lot of retreads and mediocre pitchers. Having Pedro in his prime on that squad? I mean, think about 99. In 1999, they still had Jim Tomey. They had acquired Roberto Alomar, who was still MVP-level player. They still had Sandy Alomar. They had Travis Fryman. They had David Justice. They had Kenny Lofton, they had Manny Ramirez, they had Omar Vizquel, they had Richie Sexton and his 31 homers sitting on the bench. This was a, okay, pretty juiced team, I will admit it. You take a look at that pitching staff. Burba. Bartolo Colon and Jarrett Wright. I mean, Jarrett Wright had a 6.06 ERA that year. 
Charles Nagy had a 4.95 ERA. This is when pitching for the Red Sox, Pedro Martinez was putting up numbers that Sandy Koufax would like to have in the middle of the steroid era. Meanwhile, the Indians had you know a bunch of guys with decent win-loss totals was because they were the, the team was you know clubbing the crap out of the ball. And they had a closer, their closer Michael Jackson, not that one, the other one. He had his ERA was over four. If you put a pitcher like Pedro Martinez on that team, this team wins the World Series. I mean, I mean, for God's sakes, Mark Langston made five starts for the Indians that year. Tom Candiotti made a few starts for them. I mean, this was a team that just was reaching back and like, who, who's still breathing oxygen who can throw the ball 60 feet, six inches? You know, and you look at the squad that played in, in 2001, the last great team of that, of that run. And again... Cologne was, you know, mediocre. A young C.C. Sabathia was mediocre. And the rest of their starting staff was horrible. With ERAs in the fives and the sixes. And yet they wound up winning the division because you had Tomei, who was unbelievable. Like, you had Fryman, who was, you know, still could hit. You still had, you know, the Kenny Loftons. They brought in Juan Gonzalez. They had a good year from Ellis Burks and from Robbie Alomar and Russell Brannion and all these players who could hit the snot out of the ball while Pedro Martinez was putting up historical numbers. Granted, he was hurt for most of 2001 when he was with the Red Sox, but the previous year, 2000, when the Indians won 90 games and missed the postseason, Pedro Martinez had one of the best statistical seasons of any pitcher of all time, especially when you could factor in the era. And the Indians didn't make this trade. John Hart didn't pull the trigger on it. He went to the Red Sox and ultimately became part of writing the narrative there. His final game as a Red Sox was winning game three of the 2004 World Series. The aura of Pedro Martinez on the Red Sox, the nanosecond he arrived and they signed him to the extension, there was a sense of things are going to be different in Boston because we have this guy. Now, granted, it took right to the end of his tenure with the Red Sox, but you got the sense it's different with him. And it would have been in Cleveland because the team that he inserted himself would have been inserted to in Cleveland was a team that got to within one, you know, really two outs of the, the winning the World Series, technically one out because Manny Ramirez caught the ball, but it was a sack fly and it would have certainly tied the game. So we'll just say two outs of winning the World Series in 1997. And the Red Sox were a mess in 1997. They went on a nice little playoff run, and ultimately they got to the World Series. It took a little bit more rebuilding on their part. But Pedro would have been that transcendent figure in Cleveland. Pedro would have been the person to deliver the promise to Cleveland the hugging and the, the visiting the graves and thinking about your dead grandma and grandpa and everything like that would have been relieved by Pedro. And the LeBron narrative would have simply have been a basketball one had 
the trigger been pulled on that trade after the 1997 World Series. This is how delicate reality is. This is how delicate our narratives are. One thing zigs, another thing zags. Pedro becomes a great pitcher for the Cleveland Indians and has a, you know, becomes a pitcher that I look at as like, oh, I like, yeah, I like Pedro. He was good when he pitched for Cleveland. I, I thought that was a good story. Instead of my all-time favorite player and basically a Boston icon now. This is how fragile our realities are. This is how fragile our narratives are. So go to sullybaseball.com. Check out the up-to-date listings of who owns baseball on MLBreports.com. You can like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kalisky. As I like to do, I think about the delicate balance of the universe. And I do it while connecting it to baseball. This has been the Slow Baseball Daily Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Be delicate with your narrative, and you can call me Sullivan.